And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hello, welcome to Dave Does Podcasts, a Two True Freaks presentation. I'm your host, David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. This time we have another installment of Dave Does Back to the Future, an ongoing look at all things related to and inspired by the film franchise Back to the Future. I mean, it's in the title, so yeah. This time around, we have a bit of an oddity. It's going to sound extremely related to the previous installment, and that's for a good reason. Because it is related to the previous installment, which looked at the first act of the film. The topics that we're covering in this instance were originally intended to be a part of that last episode. They were recorded as such, even. And during the editing process, I realized that I had enough material for two, count them two episodes, for the price of one, and... I don't have to be Professor Allen of the Quarterbin Podcast to know a good deal when it lands in my lap, so I just snipped it into two. And what are these topics, these mystery topics in this episode? Well, I'm taking actually a closer look at the first five minutes of the movie and talking about why I think it's some of the most phenomenal storytelling ever put to the screen. Then building off of that and last episode's look at the first act of the original movie, I examine what could have been from the pages of the novelization and an older draft of the script. So I don't want to slow everything down, so without further ado, I invite you to take a trip back with me, back to the future. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. Take that, you mutated son of a bitch! Save the clock tower! Save the clock tower! Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Hey, Dad! George! Hey, you in the fight! But the only power source capable of generating 1.21 gigawatts of electricity is a bolt of lightning. I am an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan. October is inventory time, so right now Stadler Toyota is making the best deals of the year on all 1985 model Toyotas. You won't find a better car at a better price with better service anywhere in Hill Valley. That's Stadler Toyota in downtown Hill Valley, but hurry, these prices are only good till the end of October. Statler Toyota in downtown Hill Valley, now offering 100% financing on approved credit. Hurry in and get the best deals on all 1985 models today. You won't regret it. The thing about Back to the Future is that, I don't know if I'm going to call it unique, I think that's too boastful, but it does have sort of a first act to the first act. The first five minutes of the movie serve as a prologue of sorts, almost what I consider a portrait of the characters. Now, we all remember it opens with Doc's clocks, many, many clocks from different eras ticking in time, which, of course, is on the nose in some cases. As we're talking about time travel, the clocks are from different eras. It's at once very obvious and yet so well shot that you kind of forget that and you're just kind of fascinated with them, especially the clocks with the poodles with the eyes that move and the Felix the Cat clock. 
as I call it. Something about hypnotic moving eyes just catches my attention. I don't know. Not only is this thematically in line with what we're going to be seeing, it also draws from what was a our earlier film, a big influence on Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, which is George Powell's 1960 adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. That also began with a series of clocks of some kind, so a nice little homage since The Time Machine is one of the most popular time travel tales of all time. One of the best and most subtle call-forwards or setups are within this clock. There is a Harold Lloyd clock, who was a silent film actor. It has a man hanging from the clock's arm, as you would see it in Doc Brown's third act moment. So it's calling ahead to that. It was actually from a film called Safety First. And that call ahead, I'm going to be honest with you, I did not notice that particular clock until I saw it on the big screen last year. And suddenly it was like, how have I missed this all this time? And maybe that's a testament to this movie that I can always discover some small nuance or something that just brings it up another notch, like Doc's gun in Back to the Future 3 being, looks like the same one he uses against the Libyans in the first movie. That's right, as he's firing into the air to send Marty back to 1885, take another look at that pistol. Now realistically, this is such a stupid, simple beginning. It's a pan across these clocks. And at the same time, it shows us so much. It's such a subdued opening. It's not bombastic, it's not huge. And it could have been, but it is actually very subdued, very straightforward. The next bit is going to be the newspaper clipping showing the Brown Mansion burning down in August of 1962. We also see that being referenced by soaked rags in the rampant experimentation that he does. So it's not entirely a surprise after the fact that Doc Brown's house originally burned. And yet the IDW comic is going to show us yet another path of what could have happened with the Brown Mansion. Anyway... Getting off on another path here. The other bit of information is that we see that Brown Estate was sold later down the road. Acres upon acres of prime property was sold, which kind of partners with the past due bill notice we see just a little bit later in the same shot. And of course, we're treated to pictures of Thomas Edison, Benjamin Franklin, and Albert Einstein, which surround a cot. Notice this, people. The cot itself is used. The pillow has the head indentation. Doc Brown is using the cot. Another detail that I didn't notice until last year was that when Marty is walking around the garage, if you look closely when he's on the phone with Doc, in the background you see a full-size four-post bed that Doc is clearly not using. Next to the wardrobe is a bed. Double check it. And then, of course, we begin the Rube Goldberg series of machines. The coffee maker coming on, the TV being switched on, the radio, and, of course, Einstein's dog food can kind of capping that off. Well, clearly, this man is a scientist, isn't he? I mean, what we're seeing here is, is Doc Brown. Without seeing Doc Brown, we're seeing the character put in front of us. He's clearly a brilliant man. He's had some rough times with the science, but he continues to pursue it, which is kind of directly in your face with what George and Lorraine do, which is avoid pursuing anything above and beyond what they're doing now. Based on the fact that the machines essentially do work, they're just not set up correctly, we know that he is apparently proficient, he's able... He's got an engineering concept. He's got the ability to physically build the machines beyond just designing them. He lives in a garage. He's sacrificed a lot just to pursue science and probably hasn't produced anything that has really changed the world or become commercial success. So he's after something bigger. Now, we mentioned the alarm clock going off, and we also have the TV. On the TV, we have the Statler Toyota commercial, which, of course, sets up for Marty's truck later down the road, as well as several jokes in 55, 1885, etc. And here on the news, we have the fact that some plutonium was apparently missing from the Pacific Nuclear Research Facility. In other news, officials at the Pacific Nuclear Research Facility have denied the rumor that a case of missing plutonium was in fact stolen from their vault two weeks ago. 
A Libyan terrorist group had claimed responsibility for the alleged theft. However, officials now attribute the discrepancy to a simple clerical error. Which the facility is denying. Plutonium went missing two weeks ago. Think about this. Two weeks ago. Two weeks. Volatile plutonium has been out of its element. Flip the card over. We have Libyan terrorists claiming responsibility. People should be scared shitless. This is plutonium in the hands of Libyan terrorists in the 1980s, in the Cold War. In the 1980s, it felt like nuclear annihilation was right around the corner at any time. Reagan and Gorbachev could be arm wrestling, and one of them's going to hit the button whichever way it goes. It's like over the top, but at the end is a nuclear explosion. That's always what I pictured, at least. That's probably not how the 80s actually was. Yes, there was a lot of fear of the bomb, but I don't think they were arm wrestling Stallone style. What I do is I, I just try to take my hat and I turn it around, and it's like a switch that goes on. And when the switch goes on, I feel like another person. I feel, I don't know, I feel like a, like a truck, like a machine. Pacific Nuclear Research Facility says this plutonium's not missing. There's nothing to worry about. There is a massive cover-up happening here, and it's never referenced in any of the movies. Not one. Never again. The fact that this is being covered up makes me wonder what else is being covered up in the Back to the Future world. I mean, the Stranger Things monster could be stalking in the Upside Down for all we know. We don't know what's happening here. What are they hiding? I mean, it's straight up X-Files here. Mulder and Scully could be investigating this if they weren't, you know a little bit younger than they would be in the show. About 10 years off. Okay, anyway, the point is, this is shady, this is scary, and it makes it just a little bit scarier. It steeps it a little bit in the 80s paranoia is what it does. But let's kind of come back to Doc Brown, which is a little less scary. We have the dog food in the bowl that punctuate the scene, which shows us that Doc Brown is a pet lover. He's lonely. He needs companionship, but he doesn't want a huge commitment, which is why we don't see him with a wife or a girlfriend, anything like that. This scene is very voyeuristic. It feels like we're going, in a way, through Doc Brown's trash and getting a clearer picture of him, and it does paint a clearer picture. I mean, Bob Ross couldn't paint a clearer picture than this. Today we'd make a scene that's very happy, beautiful little scene with a lot of color in it, very easy that you can do. We have a pretty solid picture of what Emmett Brown looks like, even though he doesn't appear in the film for about 20 minutes. So what do we know about Doc Brown? He's a formerly affluent man of science who experienced devastating losses in the pursuit of science. He lives in a garage, sleeps on a cot, his bills are past due, and his life is routine. Much like Einstein setting himself up to wear the same suit every day so he didn't have to think about what he's wearing, Doc Brown has set it up so he doesn't have to think about these trivial little things in life. His coffee is ready, his toast is toasted, his dog is fed, the news is on, he can roll out of bed and start working on his science? So he might be financially strapped, but he knows what he wants to do. Now, at this point, after all of this panning, enter Marty McFly. Not revealed, we just see elements of Marty McFly, much like we've seen with Doc Brown, but there's a physical body here. Marty is entering just a little after the alarm clock would go off, so he knows about the time Doc Brown would get out of bed. He's arriving here, which tells us we know that Marty knows Doc's routine. Marty is familiar enough to show up uh, whenever he pleases to some extent. We also see Marty use the key under the mat, which shows a certain familiarity with these two. Now, of course, we get this picture of a teenager when we see his shoes, which are Nike Bruins. We see the skateboard and backpack, which really gives us a clear picture. 
And then we slide the skateboard over under the cot. And what is that? That's the plutonium. That is the missing plutonium that's supposedly not missing. I'm telling you, the cigarette smoking man is watching over Hill Valley, California as we speak. But anyway, not going back to that conspiracy theory, which is not a conspiracy theory. It's actually a straight up conspiracy, isn't it? We know the plutonium's missing. We see it right here, and yet it's being covered up. What the heck is up with that? But back to the scene here. Let's add to the fact Doc is gone. Doc's not here. And he seems to have been gone for days. So Marty is showing up having not seen Doc for days. He has a key. He comes in whenever Doc would normally get up. He knows the routine. There's a familiarity. There's a friendship. We know Marty is a teenager as well. And we get more and more of Marty. We get his denim jacket. We get the guitar, the volume gets cranked up, so he's a rock and roll kid, and that leads up to the amp blowing up. This is about 4 minutes 23 seconds into the movie, leading up to the reveal of Michael J. Fox. But when we see Michael J. Fox, much like when we finally see Christopher Lloyd, he's exactly what we expect because of the way this was set up. 4 minutes 23 seconds and we don't see a single face until Michael J. Fox comes out from under that bookshelf. There's no dialogue between characters. Marty's dialogue isn't very important, but we still have this establishment that Marty is a cool skateboarding rock and roll high school kid. Doc Brown is a scientist strapped for cash who's eccentric. These two have a close friendship. Marty casually comes and goes. There's an amp there for Marty's use at any time, which, you know, that might have a weird factor to it, but I see it coming across more as an uncle-nephew relationship in this version. Just to kind of address that, Marty and Doc's relationship never struck me as odd. It's never hit that, you know, creepy feeling. And it never really came up into my frame of vision until somebody made a joke about it. And that's fortunate because this could have been presented in a more tawdry way. It could have made you question things. And for those that are wondering how Marty and Doc met, I'm going to be talking a little bit about one potential version that was presented in the script that was omitted. And then later down the road in an undetermined episode, I'm to be looking at the first issue of the Back to the Future comic from IDW, which does kind of give a more definitive stamp to the relationship. The beauty of this first 4 minutes 23 seconds isn't just how well shot it is, how well it establishes the characters. It's actually also in the fact that it's a happy byproduct of Eric Stoltz losing the role of Marty McFly. They had Michael J. Fox for a limited shooting schedule. There was a much more complex opening planned out. And to save money and to save time, this was built on a studio backlot to make that clear-cut idea of who these characters are. It's such a great magic trick, much like Doc giving so much exposition that it's all right there in seconds. This is the opposite. If that's a magic trick, this is an optical illusion of sorts. It's kind of like the magic eye photo. It's there, you just have to look a different way, but essentially by that 4 minutes 23 second mark, we know who we're dealing with. And from there, it makes the rest of the movie much, much easier to digest. As mentioned a moment ago, there was a very different opening planned, and we kind of dodged a bullet in my opinion, because it was not quite as skillfully presented as this was. And it all began with a nuclear bomb. In filmmaking, there are basically three versions of the movie. There's the one in the script, which in and of itself may have multiple versions. 
There's the one that is shot, and then there's finally the one that is edited and completed. I think there's more than three because the script can go through so many different iterations before filming even begins. Normally when a novelization is made of a film, an earlier version of the script is given to the author to work off of and construct, which is the case with the Back to the Future novelization by George Guype. It's based on the screenplay, it's just based on an earlier version of the screenplay, very, very clearly based on that. Now, I do enjoy a good movie novelization because it does sometimes give you insight into the characters and the thought process and some of the background information that just wouldn't be able to fit onto the screen, or wouldn't translate is a better way to say that. And in this novelization, we have a noticeably different opening sequence, similar to an earlier version of the script. I may be discussing both of those. With the novelization, we have the film open, or would have had the film open with Marty sitting in a classroom watching a film on nuclear tests in the 1950s. So it literally would have open with a nuclear bomb, which is such a different end of the spectrum from the subtle opening that we got. Now, Marty is found sitting in class listening to his headphones as the movie plays on and on. This is where we also meet Jennifer. She's in class with him. Um, he almost gets caught with the headphones in this version. But ultimately, everything starts rolling when he gets called to the principal's office for an emergency phone call, which turns out to be Doc Brown arranging to meet in several hours at 1.15 a.m. at Twin Pines Mall. What Marty doesn't know is that Principal Strickland is listening and eavesdropping on the line. And when they have a small verbal confrontation, Marty ends up dropping his Walkman, which gets him detention. Now, of course, this causes problems for Marty since he has the audition for the YMCA dance later that day. So he uses his skills. He MacGyvers his way into getting out of detention by basically setting off the fire alarms. He uses his friend Weeze's skateboard to get to the auditorium for the YMCA dance as fast as expected. And that just doesn't go well for him. I mean, it goes as expected from there and kind of settles into what we know from the film from that point on with some minor nuance differences. But essentially, it's a pretty drastically different cut to what we would have what we ended up seeing. Actually, the bomb opening is just melodramatic. It's a little on the nose. And with some missing plutonium out there and an X-Files style conspiracy, it makes things a little bit scarier. But it's very much, oh, this is a bomb test in 1955, and that was constructed in the script because at the end, instead of a lightning striking the clock tower scenario, the original climax would have involved driving out to a nuclear testing site, using the nuclear explosion to get back to 1955, which would have been costly. Now, there's several things I really don't like about this opening, starting with the, the third page into the novel, where we have Mr. Arky, his teacher, basically almost catching Marty singing along to this generic song in his Walkman. Just as the film turns off, he sings the last line. And it's, it really does dawn on me that he is a slacker. I mean, one of the best days in, in school was when you had a film because you could just kick back and enjoy it. But yet Marty's sitting here listening to his music. It kind of it kind of doesn't play well for Marty. Marty comes off a little bit like a prick. Strickland ends up uh, being worse. Strickland ends up being a straight up villain. I mean, he is straight up mean. The book describes Strickland as being a student of human nature, a master of detecting the deceitful maneuver, at least in his own estimation. It goes on to add that he relished each day's mental combat with the selfish young men and women who regarded him as nothing but an evil obstacle to their willfulness. See, I never really saw Strickland as outright evil. Strict, a little bit uptight, the whole discipline thing, yeah, I get it. But never outright malicious. He wasn't walking around with a baseball bat like Joe Lewis Clark. What the hell is the bat for? They used to call me crazy Joe, but now they can call me Batman. That's not a lean-on-me scenario, but he was very, very strict and uptight. But here it kind of presents him as kind of waking up in the morning and jerking off thinking about just killing some poor kid's soul. 
it's a game. Like he's getting ready to prepare for war. He's probably got some sort of regiment plan where he does exercise. I mean, this is exactly what I picture is him waking up, exercising, getting prepared for the day. He's going to got to go to war. He's like Batman is what he's like in this version. These high school kids are a cowardly superstitious lot. They must be crushed. You're on the operating table and I'm the surgeon kid. So Strickland is very justified in his actions in his mind. Now, this did give me a little bit of insight to the screen version because I do kind of see Strickland as being hard. He's very hardcore. He's very gym teacherish. But I think Strickland was somebody who started with good intentions with the discipline. And as time went on, as the generations changed, he got jaded. And now he's got more of a mission to bring it back to the, well, the version of Hill Valley that we saw in 1955. That is his ideal. If you remember in 1955, all he had to do was show up on the scene and Biff put Marty down. So he was actually a person in authority then where nobody's respecting authority in Hill Valley 1985. That's at least my viewpoint. And of course, he tells Marty, Marty's a slacker. Now he adds here that Marty, and I'll just quote it, you've got aptitude, but you don't apply yourself, which is kind of true. For Marty, at least it's stated in the book, music is everything. I mean, his greatest fear is that the phone call is canceling the audition after school. He mentions that he's not sure if he loves Jennifer because he's in love with his music, and yet she's there supporting him all the way. And yeah, we do see the aptitude. Marty's crafted this hollow book to house his Walkman, which shows ingenuity, but at the same time, it also shows a willful anti-establishment attitude. So instead of being sort of a likable, less than stellar student, you know, somebody whose focus is elsewhere, we see Marty kind of being presented as a little bit more of a delinquent and a legitimate slacker. And then we get to detention where we have Marty describing Hill Valley High School, built at the end of the Great Depression. It's very, very old. We know this is a building that has a lot of history behind it. And this really actually kind of stood out because they talk about the green blackboards replacing the the black blackboards. The sprinkler system has been added. The building's been repainted, etc. It's like a building that's on life support in a lot of ways. Now, it's a good setup for what we see in 1955, but it also makes me realize that, you know, the continuity is there. It's a, I don't know if it's an intentional theme, but it's something that does come through in Back to the Future that history continues. It's it's a duration thing. Hill Valley Square was there in 1885, 1955, 1931, if you're adding the game, 1985, 2015, it's all there, and it's all been built forward from that. So even as we're going back to 1955, we're seeing the exact same presence here, just painted over. There's a continuity of sorts to the world around us. And here we meet Wheeze, who is Marty's friend, hiding his skateboard. So the skateboard is not Marty's. It still sets up the skateboard scene later, but it's not Marty's, which bothers me a lot. It seems less valid. If Marty doesn't own the skateboard, this is not something he does regularly. So the skill that he shows later in the town square chase with Biff and his cronies wouldn't make much sense if this isn't something that Marty practices pretty consistently. And then back on the Strickland as a villain bandwagon, we see Strickland ritualistically destroying the various Walkmans and kind of taking some joy in it. He takes them in a vice, crushes them, which the Walkmans are personal property. So I think in today's society, Strickland would get in a lot of trouble. And I don't think it would be much different in 1985. Those things weren't cheap. I don't like this version because he really is a bully. He's more Biff than anything else. He's not a hardened, strict principal. He's just a jerk. I mean, in the movie, he might be a well-meaning square. Here, he's just a square. So, really, what we have here is Marty having this MacGyver moment, once again showing his ingenuity, while at the same time showing him as being borderline juvenile delinquent. Marty pulls a really cool trick, and let's talk science here. What you'll need for this is a slide projector lens, a rubber band, book of matches, and a piece of gum. And make sure to ask your parents before trying this. As Marty does, please chew the gum, and once chewed to perfection... 
please attach to the back of the book of matches and use the rubber band to shoot the book of matches onto the sprinkler. The gum will act as an adhesive sticking to the sprinkler, allowing it to stay there. Next, carefully focus the sunlight with the slide projector lens until it begins to heat up, setting off the matches, causing the sprinkler system to activate. And just to make it dramatic, have Strickland pulling down the blinds on each window one by one, getting closer to closer to the one that is important. That's how you build a MacGyver Back to the Future escape test. So, yeah, Marty manages to use that very complex Rube Goldberg attempt to set fire to the matches, set off the sprinklers, and they all escape. He burrows Wee's escape board, he gets to the audition for all the good it does him. Now, this beginning was actually abandoned and never filmed. What I understand is a set was built for the detention room, but it was never actually filmed. It was actually intended for the Eric Stoltz version of the movie, and when they switched out, they had to go a different direction because this would have cost a lot more money. It was a cost-cutting attempt. Now, in a very simple similar fashion, the fourth draft of the script, which I have access to, was very similar with some very small differences and some very big ones. The small differences include having Mrs. Woods as a teacher and she catches Marty in possession of the Walkman during class during the nuclear test movie. Little things like that. The big differences in Jennifer Parker in the fact that she's not Jennifer Parker, she's Susie Parker and she's in therapy. And we know this because she talks about her therapist a lot. I mean, for example, one of her lines is having Susie tell Marty, all of our emotional anxieties are a direct result of the influence our parents had on our children. Quoting her therapist, by the way. Susie doesn't come off quite as likable, but she's definitely not repulsive. She's the least of my worries with this version of what could have been. In this instance, in the script version, we don't get a call from Doc at the school. Hence, no fight with Strickland, nothing like that. Instead, we meet him later. With the script going back into the more familiar novel territory, we end up at the town square. And as expected, Marty and Susie are about to kiss, with Marty's erection about to be killed for another time, because Doc shows up there, earlier in the film. And he's on a PA system calling out for Marty from his RV. That's right, we don't get Doc's garage, we get Doc's RV, which, okay, alright, we're still okay here. But in the script, Doc Brown is described as an old hippie with shoulder-length white hair. Well, the hair seems right, but it also adds that he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt and an Indian turquoise around his neck. It doesn't sound quite right. He's a little bit hippie-ish. He's not quite the uptight, likable, eccentric Doc Brown that we would know. And I think a lot of that comes down to Christopher Lloyd's portrayal. Now, the RV is full of the clocks from the opening that we did end up getting. They all go off at 4 p.m., so we still get that little bit. So Marty and Doc arranged to meet at Twin Pines Mall, and we kind of get a little background on how Marty and Doc met in this version. Now, this is non-canon, so you can go ahead and dismiss this, and thankfully, you can dismiss this, because it's a little uncomfortable. So while our Jennifer ends up knowing and accepting Doc Brown, probably respecting him to some extent the way Marty does, Susie has no such connection. And Marty's telling Susie that a a couple of years ago, Doc Brown showed up at my house and hired me to sweep out that garage of his. Okay, he showed up at Marty's house, which is a little creepy. Little creepy. Now, bear in mind, there's no time travel yet, assumptively. So Doc Brown just randomly shows up at this kid's house, this 15-year-old kid's house, and says, you want a job sweeping out my garage. It gets it gets a little bit more lurid from there, kids. Marty adds that he pays me 50 bucks a week, gives me free beer, and gives me total access to his record collection. Okay, now I am uncomfortable. The free beer was kind of the tipping point. With the final version of Doc and Marty in the film, you get that uncle-nephew relationship. I never thought anything more of it. With this line of dialogue, suddenly I'm a little, eh, little freaked out is what I am. I'm a little bit freaked out because he's letting this kid play with his record collection. He gives him free beer. He's about to go full-on Gordon jump. We can have a lot of fun with our shirts off. 
And the scene actually ends with Doc driving away and yelling at an elderly man over the PA system. You're not that old. Get out of my way. It just ends up making Doc not likable at all. And I am extremely thankful that this got dropped off. We could have really had a disaster of a movie with some implications that I'm not entirely comfortable with between Doc and Marty. I mean, sure, if Marty was of age, that's their own business. Marty is not, however. And you'll notice that this script once again omits the idea that the plutonium was stolen. What the heck? This conspiracy just keeps getting deeper and deeper. You can't pretend like the plutonium wasn't stolen by Libyan terrorists. The bastards wanted Doc Brown to build him a bomb. Why do they want the bomb? What are they bombing? And why is this covered up? Mulder, Mulder, can you hear me, Mulder? This is something you need to look into. I've seen enough, Mulder. Let's go. Yeah, okay. But somewhere out there, something is watching us. There are alien forces acting in ways we can't perceive. Are we alone in the universe? Impossible. When you consider the wonders that exist all around us. Voodoo priests of Haiti, the Tibetan numerologists of Appalachia, the unsolved mysteries of unsolved mysteries. The truth is out there. Ah. No. Oh, who'd have thought a whale could be so heavy? <gasps> Cheese at defense. To bring this thing to a close, beyond the obvious cover-up at the Pacific Nuclear Research Facility, we have an extraordinary amount of luck on display here. Eric Stoltz being relieved of his Back to the Future role, and, you know, honestly, real quick here, I generally like Eric Stoltz. I'm kind of a, wouldn't go so far as to say a fan, but I'm always fond of seeing him. I just don't like him as Marty McFly. Whatever your opinion, his dismissal opened the door for a lot of domino effects to occur. We saw script rewrites, budget cuts, and that resulted in the best five minutes of character building put to the silver screen. We also see Jennifer and Doc refined a little bit. Everything is streamlined and moves smoothly. This could have been a very overly complex, muddled character profile that was built, and that could have created a whole other movie in a lot of ways. I don't know if this would have caused the movie to bomb, vanish into obscurity, or something like that, but first impressions can be very important and have a big influence over the rest of the movie and word of mouth. And logistically, the first five minutes of a movie are definitely a first impression. But you know what? Since the world doesn't have a glue shortage, I'm going to stop beating the dead horse and move on from the first act. In fact, in the next installment, I tackle Emmett Brown himself and look at his origins. What haunting secret does Doc Brown hold that would drive him to slave for 30 years on a time machine? I believe I found that secret. Be prepared, and in the next installment of Dave Does Back to the Future, we'll be looking at that, but the next installment of Dave Does Podcasts will actually feature the show's first guest, and we'll be looking at Star Trek. So next time around, which will be in one week, Dario Gonzalez and I explore the world of Star Trek in Mego form. Until then, remember that the future is what you make it, so make it a good one. Dave Does Podcasts is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. The show does not draw profit from the characters or concepts discussed. All opinions are those of the host and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. The copyrights for any music or sound clips lie with the copyright holders. They are used for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended, as this show most certainly does not draw revenue. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.